this festive season, make sure you stock up on Ring devices, which range from video doorbells to alarm and cameras. These easy-to-install smart home security products will give you peace of mind while you're away. As you can see, hear and talk to visitors from anywhere. Ring's products are available at Take-A-Lot, Builders Warehouse, Incredible Connection, Vodacom and Leroy Merlin. Because with Ring, you're always home. Welcome to True Crime South Africa, and the first in a series of bonus episodes I'll be releasing this festive season to thank you, True Crime South Africa listeners, for your incredible support throughout this year. Some of these bonus episodes, like this one, have previously appeared in the Patreon feed, so this is also a bit of a teaser for the kind of content you'll find if you decide to sign up for a Patreon subscription. Before we get into the bonus episode, I'd like to share a promo for another true crime podcast by some international pod friends of mine. Hear that jingle jingle? It could be Kris Kringle. Or a home invader coming down the chimney. A jilted lover flashing a knife under the mistletoe. Or a disgruntled co-worker at the office Christmas party lacing the punch with arsenic. It's disgusting. Jen and Cam, the hosts of our true crime podcast, are always on Santa's nice list. But this holiday season, they're filling your stockings with 12 nightmarish crimes committed by the lowest scumbags on the naughty list. It happened in Florida, so everybody's now going, oh. Oh. They'll be coming down the chimney, counting down the 12 nights till Christmas. Did I say six? Four, five, seven, eight, nine. With a different true crime case every night, each one naughtier than the last. This one is a doozy. So spike your eggnog. It's going to make you want to regurgitate. Because you'll need it for our true crime podcast's 12 Nightmares Before Christmas. They're coming to town December 13th through 24th. Listen to our true crime podcast on your favorite podcast apps. Well, I cannot wait. Hit me with it. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Dive right in. Our true crime podcast is hosted by Jen and Cam. And they are lovely people and incredible true crime podcasters too. They've covered quite a few South African cases, so I highly recommend you get them in your feed right now. Okay, so let's get into your bonus episode for the week. This episode was first released on the Patreon feed in September 2020 under the name West End Serial Killer, back when I still used monikers for serial killers. Remember? If you like this episode, you can find more like this over on the Patreon platform. I always say that listening back to my really early episodes is very weird for me, because it makes me realize how much I've changed when it comes to how I present these cases, how much more knowledge I have now, and just generally how much 2020 Nicole is nothing like 2023 Nicole. And I have no doubt you'll hear the difference too but the content is still valuable, I think. So let's get into your bonus episode for this week of December, The Serial Crimes of Jack Mukhale.
This month, I wanted to cover a serial killer that isn't really widely known. But he is, at least in my opinion, one of the most vicious I've heard of. Although the famous serial killer hunter Pete Bailefeld was involved in this case, it's not one he speaks about in his book. Famed profiler Mickey Pistorius didn't have a role to play in this case either, as by the time the guy was arrested, I think she was already no longer actively working serial cases. Gerard Labaskachny was running the investigative psychology team at SAPS at this point, and he testified in the trial. There are very few media articles that give diverse information about this case, so most of my information comes from the judgment document that I downloaded from Safley, all 123 pages of it. Because there were so many victims, the judgment document only lists the initials of the victims. I was able to get some names from the media articles, but in places I only have initials, unfortunately. I know I have an international base of Patreons here, so I wanted to clarify that the West End part of the serial killer's moniker has nothing to do with the famous part of London. This West End is the name of a cement and brick company in western area Gauteng in South Africa. I know, not quite as glamorous as the British option, but it is what it is. The reason the serial killer was given this name is because he used the fields around the West End factory as his dumping ground. The large imposing premises of the factory was well known by residents of the area, and it was an easy landmark to give a victim to make them feel comfortable going with you. Every serial killer has a trigger, but this killer's trigger would only be revealed after his arrest. The first recorded victim of the West End serial killer, though, disappeared from Western Area Magistrates Court on the 17th of March 2008. The victim in question, only referred to by her initials of H.E.M., was appearing in court that day as a witness in a fraud trial. Her friend Betty, who was also a witness in the trial, would later relay that the last time she'd seen her friend, they were on a train on the way home. One of the accused in the trial was on the same train, and they'd exchanged a few words with the man, and H.E.M. even asked the man for 20 rand, which he gave her. Betty said that, quite out of the blue, her friend said that she wasn't going to be travelling through to Soweto with her anymore, and instead said she'd be getting off the train at Waterworks Station, as she had shopping she wanted to do in Lanasia. Betty said that she tried to convince her friend to stay on the train with her, but she insisted and got off at the waterworks station. Shortly after she stood up to a light, the man who was accused in the fraud case also stood up and alighted the train at the same station. She would never see her friend again. H.E.M.'s body would only be found two years later, in 2010. By then, her body would be so decomposed that she could only be identified by DNA. 
Betty had not forgotten that final train ride with her friend, though. Nor had she forgotten the man who'd followed her friend out of the train at Waterworks Station. That man was Jack Mokale. And although Betty and HEM's family did everything they could to find the missing woman and alert police and the public to what they believed had happened that day, it would be at least another year before anything came to a head and someone eventually started to ask, Who is Jack Mokale? Jack Marumetsa Mokale was born in April 1967. He attended high school right up until grade 12, which in South Africa is our final grade. But he apparently did not complete the grade. We don't know much about Jack's life, except that three years after leaving school, he'd already started his criminal career. On the 21st of September 1988, Jack Mokale was found guilty of rape and sentenced to seven years in jail in Limpopo. We don't know how much of the sentence he served, but his next arrest was in 1995 for two counts of housebreaking. He was found guilty and sentenced to three months in jail on each charge. In a separate charge, also in 1995, Jack was found guilty of trespassing and sentenced to one month in prison. In 1996, Jack Mokale was once again found guilty of rape and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. Really, it's at this point that anyone looking at this man's history should have seen a red flag. You cannot look at a man who's been convicted of two separate counts of rape less than 10 years apart and believe that he's capable of rehabilitation. But we did. We believed that sentencing him to 10 years in jail was going to be enough to set him back on the straight and narrow. Instead, we created a ticking time bomb. Jack Mokale may well have served most of the sentence, but we do know that in 2008, he once again found himself on the wrong side of the law. This time, he was appearing in Western Area Magistrates Court on 12 counts of fraud. He was sitting in the dock on the day that H.E.M. and her friend Betty testified against him, and he boarded the train with the two women and got off at Waterworks Station, just a few steps behind H.E.M., who, of course, was never seen again. The fraud charges against Mukhale came as a result of him having falsely presented himself as a trained traditional healer. And he'd accepted money from others in exchange for healing. He was on trial along with accomplices who'd helped him to procure prospective clients. When HEM was reported missing, the police did investigate. Betty even identified Jack Mokale as being the last person she saw with her missing friend. Police opened a case of kidnapping, believing that perhaps Jack had silenced HEM 
so that she couldn't testify against him any further. Jack, for his part, claimed complete innocence. On the day he got off at Waterworks Station, he said he'd gone in the opposite direction from HEM. Police searched his home and his vehicle, a cream-coloured VW Golf that actually belonged to his girlfriend, but they were unable to find any evidence at that time. Sadly, as HEM lay in a field near the West End brick and cement factory, and the police continued their investigation into her disappearance, Jack Mukhale was nowhere near ready to stop killing. We will probably never know whether HEM really was Mukhale's first victim, but she appeared to be his trigger point, and it was all downhill from there. Something that bugs me about this case, and really most serial killer cases, is the number of unidentified victims. I understand that we are a relatively transient nation. We move around for work or better living conditions. And almost never live in the same area as our extended family. There are just too many people who end up falling prey to people like Jack Mohali and never ever get their names back. Not only do these people have their lives stolen from them, but their identities are taken too. Often, a killer will take any identifying documents or cell phones from the victim, because they know that if police cannot identify the victim, they'll find it all the more difficult to identify the killer. Look at HEM's case. They didn't even have her body yet, but just by knowing who she was, her friends and family, and those who knew her, were able to bring police within a hair's breadth of catching her killer. For someone who's moved areas for work, perhaps, and we're not talking a few kilometres here, some people will have moved thousands of kilometres away from anyone who knew them. Some might even be from different countries. Who is there to raise the alarm when they don't come home? even if they're in regular phone contact with their family at home. What resources does someone living in rural Eastern Cape, for instance, have to determine that a family member has gone missing thousands of kilometres away in the bustling metropolis of Johannesburg? Neighbours or an employer might notice the person's disappeared, but if they already know they aren't from the area, they'd probably just assume they'd gone home without saying anything. Even if someone did report the person missing, they may not even have their real name. It's not uncommon for South Africans to use nicknames or to adopt surnames from men they aren't married to. A neighbour of a migrant worker would likely not even have a picture of them. In September 2008, Jack Mukhale lured one such unidentified woman to a field in Lanasia. He held her against her will, which in later court documents would be legally defined as kidnapping. He assaulted her, and then he raped and strangled her to death. On the 10th of October, he lured a woman identified by the initials D.E.M., 
away from her place of work. He raped her, stole her cell phone, and murdered her. Many of the murders cannot be allocated an exact date, because once the remains were found, it was impossible to determine a precise date of death. Somewhere between November and December 2008, Mughali lured an unidentified woman to the grounds of the West End factory. He raped, assaulted and killed her. On the 6th of December, he took the life of another unidentified woman, holding her against her will, raping her, assaulting her and then strangling her to death. At this point, he'd taken the life of five women. Jack Mukhale would have a few surviving victims, one of which would eventually be his downfall. These survivors would also help to paint a picture of exactly how conniving Mukhale was and how he used old tricks to lure new victims. On the 23rd of December 2008, a woman identified as N.M. was doing her Christmas shopping in a shop in Lanasia. When she left the shop, she encountered a man who claimed to be a traditional healer. She would later say that he was wearing a ZCC badge, as well as a string of beads she associated with a Sangoma, or traditional healer. For clarification, the ZCC is a religious organisation. The letters stand for Zion Christian Church, and members wear a Silver Star badge to identify their affiliation. Betty, the friend of the first victim, would also mention that when she'd seen Jack Mokhali on the train, he'd also been wearing a ZCC badge and traditional healer beads. It is still unknown how Jack Mukhale got the information he used to lure NM that day, and it may well have been a wild guess. But when he approached her, he told her outright that he'd been sent to heal her because he knew she was experiencing problems with her boyfriend and that she was suffering from womb issues. In reality, it would later be discovered that NM was suffering from a persistent UTI. But Jack's close prognosis convinced her that this man could help her. It's important to understand that South Africans who've grown up in very traditional backgrounds have a deep belief in the power of traditional healers. This is much the same as a person choosing to go to, go to what we could call an alternative healer or a homeopath. There's nothing gullible or ridiculous about N.M. believing that Jack could help her, as traditional healers would likely have been a major part of her life. People who grew up in a traditional way like this will often have visited far more traditional healers than medical doctors in their lifetime. Jack told N.M. that he could heal her, but she had to give him 150 rand so that he could go and buy the ingredients he needed for a healing tea that he would make her. NM handed over the money, and he asked her to show him where she lived so that he could visit her the next day and undertake the healing process. NM duly did this, and after confirming where she lived, 
he left to purchase the ingredients, promising to visit her the next day. True to his word, as much as that means anything to Jack, he arrived at NM's home the next day. She asked her roommates to wait outside while the healer worked on her. He gave her the tea to drink, and she reported feeling dizzy and unwell. Not to worry, Jack said. This was as a result of the evil spirits that were making her sick, beginning to leave her body. In fact, it would be better if they left her place of residence, so that when the spirits did leave her body, they didn't get trapped in her room and cause her more problems. The ideal place to be would be an open field, where the spirits could be released completely. NM agreed to go with Jack, and she also agreed to pay him 400 rand before they left as payment for his services. NM recalls being led to a field where at this point she felt so ill and so dizzy that when Jack instructed her to remove her pants and underwear so that the spirits could leave her womb, she complied. Jack began to rub tea leaves into her genitals and then told her that in order for the spirits to completely leave her, he was going to have to have sex with her. At this point, from whatever she'd been drugged with, the woman was drifting in and out of consciousness, and she says that she thinks she agreed, because she believed that Jack was a man of God, and she really believed that he was trying to help her. Throughout the act, she recalls praying to God out loud, because something deep within her told her that there was something not quite right with this situation. When Mukhale was finished, he left NM in the field to find her own way home. When she arrived back at her room, her roommates immediately realised that something was wrong with her and called her family to collect her and take her to hospital. Her sister arrived the next day and took her to a hospital in Polokwane, where she admitted what happened to her. Police were called and NM opened a case against the man who tricked her and sexually assaulted her. While that case was under investigation, though, Jack had no intention of slowing down. You would think that police attention would have a serial killer slow his crimes, at least for a little while. But the opposite has been shown to be true. Most serial killers revel in the fact that they can prove their prowess by killing even more, right under the noses of police. And Jack Mohale was no different. Between December 2008 and January 2009, he raped and murdered an unidentified female. On the 19th of January, Jack approached a woman known only as ST in a parking lot of a shopping centre in Laneja. The woman, along with a friend, was handing out advertising pamphlets for a medical doctor based in the centre. Around lunchtime, ST's colleague recalls her friend approaching her, and she was accompanied by a man she didn't know. ST told her friend that she was going with the man to visit a bishop who would pray for her and help her to heal from an illness she was living with. 
She assured her co-worker that she'd be back by two o'clock in the afternoon. ST left her handbag and cell phone behind in the doctor's office and left with the man. She did not return at two o'clock. In fact, she didn't return at all. Instead, later that afternoon, her friend saw the man that ST had left with around the centre. She confronted him and he denied that ST had ever left with him. He said that he'd walked the woman to a car who had then taken her to see the bishop and he had no idea where she was now. When ST's friend realised that the woman was not coming back, she made contact with her husband and advised him of the day's events. ST would eventually be found in a field near the West End factory. She had been raped and murdered. Just two days later, the West End serial killer struck again. On the 22nd of January 2009, he approached a sex worker at the Caltex garage near the waterworks station. The woman, N.N., was working with a friend who would testify that a man in a cream-coloured golf had approached her friend and said he'd like to take her home to do business, as he put it. N.N. was initially not interested, but after some conversation with the man, her friend said that she had left with him. N.N. was reported missing when she didn't return from the visit with this man, and her friend would relay that, two days later, a captain at the local police station arrived at the Caltex where she was trying to get customers and told her that they had found a body of an unidentified female. He described the clothing that the woman had been found in, and she immediately knew it was N.N. This would later be confirmed by a physical identification. Two months later, N.N.'s friend was at the Caltex when she saw the same cream-coloured golf again. She didn't approach the man, and he was there too briefly for her to call police, but she did get the registration number of the vehicle. NN's friend would eventually be able to identify the man in the cream-coloured golf two years later, and quite by chance. A warrant officer had visited her to discuss NN's case, and while the officer was sitting with her, he was fiddling with some of his other dockets, and a photograph accidentally fell out of one of the files. As the officer reached to pick it up, Enin's friend gasped. It was the man. The man who had taken her friend. The man in the photograph, of course, was Jack Mokhale. But we're jumping ahead here, because Jack Mokhale was not quite finished with January 2009. After he'd killed NN, and while police were investigating her murder, he would go on to lure, rape, and murder four more women and one child. Just in that month, two of the women were found within days of one another, and the child was found shortly afterwards. Sadly, even the child would remain unidentified. 
On the 27th of January, Jack lured a woman referred to as ANW from her home in Tembalichle, informal settlement, to Laneja. She would later be found strangled after having been raped. The woman's uncle would note that a man had been lurking around their house in the days before ANW went missing. He described the man as wearing a ZCC badge. He found the man's behaviour strange, and when he suddenly disappeared from view, her uncle went to see where he'd gone. He found that the mysterious man had jumped over the wall behind their home and fled after noticing the uncle's attention. ANW's uncle would later identify that man as Jack Mokhale. On the 29th of January, Jack Mokhale raped and assaulted an unidentified woman near the West End factory. The woman initially survived the assault and was discovered by a passerby. She was rushed to hospital, but died a month later without ever regaining consciousness. January 2009 was Mokhale's most prolific killing month, and he ended it having claimed eight lives in just one month. He then waited almost a full month before killing again, when on the 22nd of February, he intercepted a woman referred to as DCG. She was on her way to Coltonville for a funeral, but somehow Jack lured her into a field near the West End factory and raped and killed her. Her body was found on the 1st of March 2009, with the ligature still wrapped around her neck. Between February and March, Jack raped and murdered a woman referred to as UES. Also during the same time, he had raped and murdered another unidentified woman. Police were most certainly on high alert during this time, and Gerard Labuskachny would later say that his unit started to see the similarities between the crime scenes very early on. While several lower-ranking police officers initially worked the cases, the series would eventually fall under the then-brigadier Piet Bailevald, but only after an arrest had been made. On the 13th of March 2009, Dimakat Magdalene Tlalo was given a lift by a man in a cream-coloured Volkswagen Golf. On the way to their destination, the man... Jack Mokhale, took a detour and pulled into a field near the Western Area Sewage Works. He pulled Dimakat out of the car and assaulted her with a brick and then strangled her until she lost consciousness. He then raped her. Then Jack Mokhale made a very big mistake. He walked away, assuming that Dimakat was dead. Her badly battered face and motionless body belied the fact that she was still barely breathing. Demacat would regain consciousness 24 hours later in a hospital bed, surrounded by police officers. They had no doubt that Demacat's attacker was the man they were looking for. She described her attacker as wearing a ZCC badge and Sangoma beads. He'd driven a cream-coloured golf. The pieces were starting to be brought together.
on the 27th of March 2009, police raided the home of Jack Mokhale in the middle of the night while he slept beside his girlfriend. They found several cell phones belonging to his victims, as well as other trophies he'd taken, including pieces of clothing and underwear. Jack Mokhale was arrested and held in custody. Many of his surviving victims and the friends of the deceased victims were brought in to identify Jack as the man who had either attacked them or last been seen with their deceased friends. His cell phone records were meticulously tracked and put him in the area of almost every single attack. It was also noted that he had, on occasion, put his own SIM card into his victim's phone just hours after they disappeared. The final nail in Jack Mokhale's coffin, though, was the DNA. DNA recovered from several victims matched his profile. Jack would later claim that the whole thing was an elaborate setup by police and that they'd taken a used condom from his home on the night of the arrest and used that to claim that the DNA was from the victims. The judge in the trial would find this to be ridiculous, and it was also discounted by the proof of chain of evidence between the samples taken from the victims. Jack Mokhale's behaviour in custody proved his feelings towards women. Whenever he was in the presence of female officers, he would behave strangely. He attempted to urinate on one officer and also told one, quote, One day I'll be out of custody and you will be the first person I will rape and murder. End quote. Jack Mulhale was denied bail and held in custody while the complex and extensive case against him was assembled. Thankfully, during this time, he was also still facing the fraud charges that had originally put him in the path of his first victim. And when he was convicted of those 12 charges and sentenced to a prison term, investigators at least knew that he was safely behind bars while they built their case. That relief would almost slip through their fingers, though, when, still in the holding cells, Mokhale impersonated another prisoner who was due in court and escaped from custody very briefly. The courthouse was locked down and Mokhale was found hiding behind a toilet. Pete Bailefeld had a way with serial killers and he was called in to interview Mokhale in an attempt to get a confession out of him. Bailefeld alleged that the man had told him Quote, I want you to help me, because when I'm with a woman, I lose control, and I don't know what I'm doing. I kill all of them, if they don't give me what I want. End quote. Mukhale would later deny saying this. In fact, throughout his trial, he continually claimed his innocence. According to him, he was never in the places where his cell phone activity put him. Someone else was using his phone, or the police were simply lying. He never used his girlfriend's VW Golf, he claimed, despite her testimony that he used it regularly. 
Jack Mukhali went as far as to tell the judge, while he looked him in the eye, that witnesses who claimed to have seen a man with scars on his face must have been mistaken, because he didn't have any scars. The judge asked him how that could be possible, as he was looking at him, and his face was indeed scarred. Jack denied this. Mukhale faced 61 counts of rape, murder, kidnapping, and attempted murder. He was found guilty of 52 charges, 19 of rape, 16 of murder, 9 of kidnapping, and attempted murder. On the 17th of March 2011, he was sentenced to 16 life sentences, which run concurrently and he's not allowed to be considered for parole for 23 years. As he was led from court, he shouted at his victim's family members, saying, You are also coming. I pray I will be out soon. In Judge Homo's sentencing, he described Mukhale as a man who cannot be in society. The judge also commended the hard work of police, in putting together such a complex case, and also the excellent testimony of Gerard Labaskachny. I will admit to laughing a little when I read his comments about Gerard's testimony. He goes on for about three paragraphs about how good it was, and then he ends it with, his testimony was awesome indeed. <laughs> um, man crush much, Judge? It's okay. We understand. Gerard Labaskachny is pretty awesome indeed. Although Jack Mukhale will be eligible for parole in 2034, the judge ensured that the following note was placed on his file for future correctional services and parole board staff members to heed. Quote, In the very unlikely situation where the Correctional Services Department may contemplate releasing the accused on parole in future. It is the recommendation of this court, because of the complete absence of any remorse or recognition of wrongdoing, and in my opinion, there is little prospect of rehabilitation or reformation, that the accused should remain in custody for the remainder of his natural life and should never be released from prison. End quote. I think Jack Mukhali is probably one of the most vicious offenders South Africa has ever seen, and I don't say that lightly. His victim counts may not have been as high as someone like Moses Satoli, for instance. But if you look at January 2009, where he managed to kill eight women in 10 days, from the 22nd to the 31st. That's almost one victim a day. He did then start to slow down, but this guy was completely out of control. His attacks were so vicious that his last victim who survived had to have extensive facial surgery just to be able to speak again. And considering we know from that victim that he raped her after he thought she was dead. It's very likely that he did that with his other victims too. 
the only victim he left alive after raping her was the young lady who, in her drugged state, says that she thinks she agreed to the act. Personally, I only think he left her alive because too many people had seen him with her and it was too dangerous for him. Something I found very interesting that Gerard Labaskachny mentioned in the trial is that South African serial killers tend to swap methods of killing more than is seen in other countries. He mentioned that serial killers here are far more likely to just use whatever they can get their hands on than to be really particular about their method of killing. I guess that probably also makes it a lot more difficult to identify serial murderers because you're looking for those consistencies. And I think this also means that you really need a South African trained eye to be looking at these cases. Because a profiler who's used to serial killers in America, for instance, may not pick up on the same details. And that is your bonus episode for the week. I do hope you found value in it. And don't forget to check out our True Crime podcast. And also, if you'd like 35 additional episodes in your feed, sign up to Patreon for a minimum of just $1 a month. I'll be back in your feed later in the week with episode 138. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial a bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.